0: markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Feifield. Hey folks, how
1: you doing? Welcome once again to Chat with Traders podcast. The feature on this episode is someone who I had the great pleasure of meeting and speaking with at QuantCon 2017 in New York City. Xiao Chow is a research analyst for a Connecticut-based hedge fund, focused on trading commodity futures. Prior to this point, he completed a PhD in finance and was a teaching assistant to renowned economist Eugene Fama. And notably, Shao has also worked directly with trading legend Blair Hull on two quantitative research projects, which concern market timing and return predictability. White papers for both of these can be found in the show notes at chatwithtraders.com 153. The main objective of this episode with Xiao is to learn how a research analyst thinks about things directly related to research and ways that you can do better market research for yourself. On top of this, Xiao, based on his experience, shares a few tips for those who have an urge to study something but are unsure about what to study and some of the differences he's observed between the world of academia and working as a practitioner. Please welcome Xiao Chao for episode 153. So one of the first things I wanted to ask you, Xiao, is um, what pushed you in the direction, or at least attracted you to finance? Like before grad school, and before you decided what you were going to study, all of that, what actually turned you on to finance?
2: So I first started uh, in college. I, I did a variety of things. Um, I studied a little bit of uh, engineering, a little bit of math, um, finance, and statistics because um, I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. Uh, you know, And I realized what I wanted or what I liked rather um, is applied mathematics. And so I always thought I was going to be an engineer. Both my parents are engineers. Um, so I did some material science engineering. Uh, I enjoy that, but I didn't enjoy working in a lab. But I did enjoy the applied mathematics side, and I wanted to not work in a lab, um, still get good data, and uh, keep on using the the math background I had. So finance is a natural uh, laboratory for that, in that um, the data for finance is very, very good. Stock return data is, is uh, very precise and uh, easily available, um, and it would allow me to continue to, to apply the same tools I had been applying in uh, engineering or statistics, um, and also I enjoyed Um, Some of the core finance idea, like the time value of money or um, risk-neutral pricing, some of these ideas just really appealed to me. So, I thought I want to dig a little bit deeper. So, that's how I decided I would go to grad school in finance.
1: Okay. And when we talk about applied math, what sort of things does that cover?
2: So, what I have in mind in particular are, um, I guess, probability theory, um, applied statistics, things like uh, linear algebra, um, real analysis, these sort of things. Right. And then when you went to grad school, what was it that you actually studied there? Um, so the program name, I suppose, is uh, um, is a PhD in finance. Um, and uh, so the initial training is broadly similar, and you actually end up taking the same classes as the economics students in the economics department at the University of Chicago, um, So, which means uh, microeconomics, macroeconomics, and econometrics. Um, in the first year. And then you take some finance specific classes like asset pricing or corporate finance. Then afterwards, you start to um, uh, drill down a little bit narrower into the research area you're most interested in. And um, that for me meant asset pricing. So that means working with uh, specific asset pricing researchers and try to really hone your skills there.
1: Okay. So I want to ask you this question. I feel like you're a good person who might be able to shine a little bit of light on the subject, but I've had a few emails from people lately, seems to be a few more than, than normal, uh, specifically asking about or seeing if, you know, asking me for advice. I don't think I'm really the right person to give it, but you know, considering you've taken this path, you know, people are a little bit unsure about what sort of things they might want to study. Like how did you know that you were making the right choice and did you know going into your grad program what you wanted to do coming out
2: the other side of it? Sure, that's a that's a great question um, and I, I'm not sure if I'm entirely qualified uh, to speak broadly about that question but I can share my experience. Um, so in terms of deciding um, what to study, I think the best thing to do is just try to explore early on, as early as you can. Um, because it's not it's not always clear what you like today is gonna be what you like tomorrow. Um, especially in your late teens or early twenties. I, I think uh, um, a lot of your ideas become solidified and, and your thoughts change quite a bit. So that that was certainly true for me. I, I went to college thinking I was gonna be some sort of engineer. Um my dad's a mechanical engineer, so I thought maybe I wanna do something like that. But once once I got to college, I, I realized, you know, maybe I want to do something similar to engineering, but not exactly engineering. So then I explore a little bit more in statistics and finance. I found that I actually enjoy finance more than um, the engineering that I was studying, material science. Um, so I, I think uh, what worked for me is that uh, really just trying to take classes in, in different fields and, and try to um, you know talk to faculty or, or talk to um, maybe slightly older people who have uh, chosen, um, who have spent who have had some experience in, in their respective fields to try to get their perspective of what, what the field is about, uh, just try to gather information in that sense and then try to make a more informed decision.
1: Okay, and we'll get to this in a bit, but you are a research analyst today. When you were going through this grad program, is that, what, like, is that the specific thing that you wanted to do when you came out of it? Or even going through the program, were you still a little bit unsure about what role you might slot into afterwards?
2: You know, I'm not sure. Um, even now, if this, this is, you know, if you, if I made the right choices, I, I think we all sort of have to self doubt uh, continuously. Um, no, no matter where, where you are, and, and I'm not sure if there is any way to um, to necessarily, absolutely get around that. Um, so, I, I would maintain the same advice: is just try to explore your options. So, going into grad school, typically. Um, at least in the U.S., what uh, um, what grad school entails is they try to train you to become an academic. So going to grad school, the expectation for both the program um, director and for the students, um, me in this case, the expectation for, for, for everybody is that you're going to be an academic or you're going to be trained to become an academic. So that's what I thought I was going to be co- going into uh, the finance PhD program at the University of Chicago. As I explored more of the program and, and more aspects of academia, I found that perhaps I would enjoy uh, working in industry as a practitioner Um more compared to life as an academic. And that was more of a personal choice than, than anything is out of preference um, to have some more freedom. Um, so so then I decided I would uh, get a job um, in industry rather than get an academic job or get a faculty position somewhere. Um, so I think it, it comes down to a combination of preferences and opportunities. Um, and these things, unfortunately, are um, always changing. So you really have to keep an open mind and, and just try to explore what you can.
1: No I think that's really sound advice. And during this time I don't know the proper word for the relationship but uh you either learned from these two people they were lecturers or I don't know you can correct me here um Fama and Hansen I've just got their last names here in my notes. Um can you tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about what it was like to learn from them like these are two from my understanding, quote, well
2: respected names in academia, right? Yeah, absolutely. These are two absolute giants um in, in finance, economics in general. And um I'm very fortunate to have had the opportunity to interact with them. Um so I've uh, I've interacted in, in different capacities. So for Pharma, I was actually his teaching assistant for the asset pricing class he's taught um, for the past 50 years. Uh, so I got to know uh, Fama a little bit better than Hanson. And what I, what I learned from Fama is you have to be very precise and concise in your exposition. When you talk about ideas, when you, especially when you write academic research papers, um, you really don't want to uh, use more words than you have to, and you want to be, be very clear exactly what you mean. And I I didn't really quite appreciate this, especially coming out of college. I thought maybe the content is more important than the presentation. But I think one of the main things I learned in grad school is being able to communicate your content is equal as important, if not more important. Uh, Another thing I learned from Fama is how to learn to read tables um, very carefully. Um, I've directly asked Fama this. And I said, Gene, how how come you're so sensitive to these numbers in tables? You go to a presentation and... uh, you immediately point out and say, hey, this number doesn't make much sense. Um and the researcher goes back and, and realizes maybe he's made a mistake, uh how do you do that? And Fama said, well, you really just have to uh think about these things carefully, read the paper before you come, um, and think through uh you know what 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 are uh intuitively what what are some constraints on, on what the possible numbers are maybe in, in a regression table. Um so since then I've taken um I've taken reading tables much more seriously, and uh, now, now I try to um, really think deep about uh, you know both the economic meaning behind all the empirical work, work we do, but also try to be sensitive to the numbers. Um, for uh, Lars Hansen, um, I didn't quite interact with him in in uh, research capacity. I think our re- research interests were a little bit different, um, but I did take three classes with him. And what I got out of Hansen is to take economics seriously. The economics is not... Is not just a fun uh, set of abstractions for uh, the ivory tower for, for the academic researcher, but it's actually an important tool that we can use to understand the world. I guess in, in that sense, we, I try to apply economic thinking in everyday life, try to you know, try to apply what Hansen has uh, told us.
1: Okay. So as you mentioned there, you worked, I guess, more closely with Fama. Mm-hmm. How did that opportunity come about? Like how were you fortunate enough to get into that position? Did you just happen to be in the right class and build a bit of a relationship with him? Or um, like how did that opportunity come about?
2: So so Pharma teaches this uh, – uh, the first out of a, of a series of uh, required um, – finance PhD classes actually. And, uh, so every finance student, uh, has to take it and, and many economic students and some MBA students also take this class. So I took this class, uh, early on and every year, um, Fama picks, uh, his TAs, he picks two teaching assistants from the previous year who, who has taken the class in the previous year. So I suppose I did reasonably well in this class and his, uh, the two TAs who I had recommended that, uh, um, I'd be chosen for, to, to serve as the teaching assistant for the following year. And, and fortunately um, for me, Fama agreed. Um, so that, that's how that opportunity came about.
1: Makes sense. Very good, man. Now, how long was the grad program that you went through?
2: You know, I, I think the, the length um, differs by the individual. But typically, um, these days for the finance program, it's about five years from uh, the day you enter the program to the day you leave the program.
1: Okay. And that's considered or classified as full-time? Yes. Okay. Now, I'm not sure whereabouts this came into the picture, but you linked up with Blair Hull. How
2: did this opportunity come about? Yeah, so I think there is a lot of serendipity at work here. Um, so I was working through my my uh, PhD program. I was trying to write a, a doctoral dissertation to, um, to graduate. And then one day I, I got an email from... Uh, from this guy, Blair Hall, um, actually from, from his uh, personal assistant, I said, uh, um, he wants to write a white paper on, on market timing. Um, so I, I think I've heard of the name Blair Hall at some point in, in just my leisure readings. So I Googled uh, who he was and, uh, and he's this, uh, big shot, uh, trader who, who sold his company to Goldman Sachs in the late nineties for, for an absurd amount of money. Um, so that, that was interesting. And, uh, I also noted that he, um, um, he played blackjack and, uh, while in college, I actually enjoyed playing blackjack quite a bit. Um, so I emailed him back and said, Hey, uh, I'm also, uh, I've also played some blackjack, but, uh, I've also thought about market timing a little bit. So can we talk? Um, so, uh, so I went to Blair's office and we, we chatted for an hour, hour and a half and, uh, we, we just hit it off, uh, on both, uh, market timing and blackjack. And, uh, at the end of that chat, Blair said, Hey, let's, let's work together. Let's write this paper and think about the research. <laughs> Just like that eh <laughs> yeah uh, I, I thought I think uh, I was quite fortunate in that sense. So how did his
1: well you said you got an email from his personal assistant but I presume that he must have discovered you somehow like how did you come onto his radar?
2: Yeah sorry may- maybe uh, I wasn't entirely clear there so uh, I believe what had happened was uh, I think Blair was uh, searching for somebody, with some uh, academic training to, to write this paper. So the email wasn't – I don't think was was uh, only directed at me, but I think also at my uh, PhD classmates. And I'm not sure if he also sent similar emails to, to other schools in the area, in the Chicago area or not. Um, so I think he sort of just was spreading a wide net trying to find a co-author to write this paper.
1: Okay. Now, one of the things I wanted to ask you around this is how come – he reached out to someone like yourself. Like, you know, Blair has a team, you know, he's got catch 'em trading nowadays, and um, there's a few other companies he has as well, like the the ETF, um, right, etc. Um, surely he has like researchers on his on his team already who he could work with. Um, how come he sort of reached out to someone who he'd never worked with before? to work on this project?
2: So my understanding, and I don't wanna to speak too much for, for Blair here, so my understanding of the situation is uh, um, I think Blair has attempted to write uh, a white paper a couple of times in the past um, before we worked together. Um, and uh, these white papers were, were interesting, but I, I don't think they were exactly at the level um, to, be, um, to be published in, in, a, in a top journal. Um, so I think uh, Blair maybe wanted just a little bit of academic touch on the paper itself, um, to sort of get over the hurdle, so we can um, to have some legitimacy, be published in, in a good journal. Um, so, so that's that's sort of what we did in the end. So Blair and I um, wrote this paper called "The um, A Practitioner's Defense of Return Predictability um, Forecasting a Six Month Ahead Equity Risk Premium," and uh, eventually we got it published in the Journal of Portfolio Management, which is uh, a widely read uh, practitioner publication.
1: Okay, now I. I want to dig into this a little more because it's it's a massive opportunity um, on your part to be able to work with Blair Hull and I'm sure it was a, an enjoyable experience. When you first started working with Blair, you know, we know Blair coming from a blackjack background, like he was big in blackjack before he ever came into trading, when you were speaking with Blair about, you know, his trading and thoughts on markets and investing, etc., was it Obvious to you that there was still a blackjack influence which carried over into how he thought about financial
2: markets? I think the short answer is yes, absolutely. I actually, as much as I enjoy playing Blackjack myself and uh, all the blackjack uh, books and blackjack education, I, I put upon myself. Um I, I didn't realize, I guess Blair was very low-key about this. I didn't realize how big of a deal black um Blair was in the blackjack community. Um in fact, uh, Ken Houston, um, who made uh, this idea of team play, famous. So team play is the idea that you have a team of blackjack players and uh, you, have a whole bunch of, um, you have a whole bunch of players scattered at different tables. And if one table gets hot, um, he or she at the table signals for the big player to come in uh, and bet really big. So this idea was later popularized by the MIT blackjack team. Um, so And it was later made into the movie 21. And, uh, uh, and I realized that uh, I think Blair actually had a lot to do um, with Ken Houston's team. So, so that was a very cool connection. Um, so given that Blair was so heavily involved in, in Blackjack, certainly I think some aspects of Blackjack come out. So there, there's a few uh, maximums, if you all here. So one is don't play if you don't have an edge. So in Blackjack... The idea of keeping track of the cards to having having uh, dealt is so you have a good idea of what the time-varying edge you have um, in betting. And that ranges from positive to negative. And when you, when you don't have an edge, when the edge is to the house, you want to bet as small as you can, maybe the table minimum. Um, in fact, at one point, uh, maybe in the 60s or 70s, you're allowed to just stand behind the table and watch and not bet at all until the table gets hot. These days, I think that behavior gets caught very quickly and the casinos don't like it very much. So so the first thing is don't play if you don't have an edge. Now, <laughs> if you do have an edge, apparently sizing your bet is still very important. And you have to remove emotions from investing once you've had your edge. And I, I say investing here because I think Blair thought of uh, Blackjack as investing rather than, rather than gambling. He thought of it as a, a serious job um, so that uh, – you know, it's it's a job that he knew he had a a system that worked, and he followed it re- religiously. And I think you see that in in Blair's catchem uh, um, trading as well as the uh, Hall Tactical, the ETF company.
1: Yeah, that's funny you bring that up actually, because when I interviewed Blair on the podcast, I think Fino uh, is interested in that. I think it was episode eighty five. Um, he spoke about all of those things. I mean, that was one of the big things I took away from that. Uh, that interview with Blair and I've repeated this a few times through various different mediums. If you don't have an edge, there's no reason to play.
2: Like that's that's just like ingrained in me now <laughs> after speaking with Blair. I mean, it sounds so simple, but it's if you think about it, it's actually quite deep. And and I think maybe a little too many people try to play when don't have an edge.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I mean, like I've said, if if I think if traders actually you know, especially newer traders actually understood that line and what it actually means to have an edge, they'd probably save themselves a lot of money and a lot of um <laughs> heartache. <laughs> I completely agree. Yeah. So why was it that you guys wanted to study or, or not study, but research market timing?
2: So... So I think uh, uh, for Blair, of course, who of course has a has had a much longer career um, b- before he's uh, ever met me, I think he's thought about market timing for for quite a while. Um, and for me, I came about market timing because I, I was thinking about um, perhaps uh, new predictive analytics. Um, I guess some people call these things machine learning. How to apply some of these tools in into finance and predictability seems like a very natural place to do this. Um, so there is a. Uh, Why tackle this question? Well, there's been a debate about uh, the feasibility of market timing. And uh, there's been a stigma, if you will, associated with market timing in the past. So the debate um, has uh, proponents on both sides. So Robert Merton, the 1997 Nobel laureate, um, as early as 1980, said that it wasn't really possible to time the market at all um, or even to estimate the equity premium very well. Whereas a more recent paper um, by... Two academics, Goyal and Welch, um, showed that many of the return predictors that um, have worked well in the past don't work very well out of sample. So these are the guys that say you can't time the market, you can't even really predict returns very well. Whereas on the other side, early work by Farmer and French and Campbell and Schiller in the late 80s um, both showed that using the price dividend ratio, we can actually capture some expected return variation associated with future returns. And more recently, John Cochran wrote a paper in 2008. Um, that offers a strong argument in favor of predictability, so is really um in this background of not having a completely resolved question that uh, Blair and I found found this challenge interesting um because much of the academic research is about uh, statistical power, whether you can actually find statistically significant uh, predictability, and the fact that Several of these papers, actually many of these papers now, show that you can establish some um, statistical power in in, um, forecasting returns. I guess Blair, my take on on, on this question is, well, if you're able to forecast returns, what does this mean economically? If you're able to um, construct a market timing strategy with this knowledge, can you actually form a successful trading strategy? And that's essentially our research question in, in the paper. And I think uh, that's also, I would say more broadly, um, our research agenda in in thinking about predictability and turning it into an actual trading strategy.
1: Right. And just to be clear, what exactly is market timing referring to? Like, is that just identifying um, good times to be invested in the market and then times to be out of the market as well? Or is there a little more to it?
2: Yeah. So, um, in what I just said, I, I, I mixed up. I was using two terms um, more or less interchangeably. I said market timing and return predictability. So um, return predictability refers to whether you can forecast future market returns at all. So given all we can see is historical data standing, standing at time today, can we say something about what future returns may look like? So that's a statistical exercise uh, trying to forecast the market Now, if you are able to forecast the market, then potentially you can use that knowledge of where the market may go and adjust your position, adjust your market exposure. And that is, to your point, what you said about uh, um, do you want to overweight or underweight your your position um, uh, to to sort of tactically take advantage of this knowledge. So I will call it it that market timing.
1: Okay. And when you say forecast returns... How specific are you trying to be? Like, are you trying to say that five days from now the S and P five hundred will be up five percent, or are you trying to say, you know, there's a, you know, there's a eighty percent probability that it's going to be up more than five percent over the next five days, and then twenty percent it might be, you know, less than that, or like, how specific are you trying to be when you talk about
2: forecasting returns? <sighs> So, of course, we want to be as specific as we can, uh, but unfortunately, given that the information set you you ever have is only up to the day you're making this uh, prediction, um you don't know what will happen in the future, and uh, which means which means your forecast error um, there's only so much you can do to control how large forecast error may be. So I think it's very difficult to make the statement um, like like the first one that you mentioned, something about uh, maybe a week from now, return will be 5%. I think that's extremely difficult to, to make. And all you can say is, in all likelihood, uh, in the next five days, the return will be centered around some number. Um, but the variance of that number may be, may be very large. Um, so there is a lot of uncertainty associated with return predictability. But I think uh, perhaps the important takeaway here is that even though you can't make a precise statements about exactly where returns are going to go, if you have an idea where it's going to go, then you can do something about it. And that's what market timing is all about.
1: Okay. So ultimately, what was like the outcome of this paper and the research project?
2: So what we found is that uh, um, there are all these academic papers um, talking about different return predictors, different variables that we can use to forecast the equity premium uh, at different frequencies, actually. Um, and we thought about combining these return predictors. So there's some academic work um, by Alan Timmerman um, at uh, UCSD as well as uh, some St. Louis academics um, on model combination or forecast combinations already, Um, but they don't quite necessarily um, go after the economic importance. So they they don't try to construct a, a, a trading strategy. So Blair and I took a similar approach in combining return predictors. And we show that if we combine 20 return predictors, that actually leads to strong enough forecasting results to build a trading strategy. So our forecasting target is going to be the six-month-ahead market excess returns. And what we find is that from 2001 through 2015, a back test of our market timing strategy um, is able to achieve twice the average returns of the S&P 500 during the same period with only half the volatility thereby quadrupling the sharp ratio of buy and hold. So the strategy is only taking positions in spy, the S&P 500 ETF, um, based on our statistical model. So it's, uh, in the end, it's, it's a very simple strategy that overweights, underweights uh, the market. But the outcome, um, I think, is uh, sort of remarkable in that all you're trying to do is forecast where the market is going and take positions um, related to your forecast. And you, ha- you can actually do much better compared to the market,
1: Right. And I'm not sure if this would be detailed in the paper, which is available, but can you give us an example or a couple examples of just a few of these return predictors that you mentioned?
2: Sure. Um, so, I mean, all of this is public information. The, the paper, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is published in in, in the Journal of Portfolio Management and it's also available um, for free download on uh, – Social Sciences um, Research Network, or SSRN, um, if you like uh, more details. But uh, um, I can give a a few examples of uh, the return predictors. So more traditional return predictors, such as price ratios, so variables such as dividend price ratio, price-earnings ratio. Um, Robert Schiller likes to use this CAPE, cyclically adjusted price-earnings ratio. So we include all of these price variables, which have been shown to be able to forecast um returns, especially at longer horizons, um, but also some newer variables that have shown up in the literature more recently, such as the variance risk premium, which we found to be a very strong return return predictor at around the three month horizon. So the variance risk premium is the difference between the implied volatility, um, of uh, of the um, options on um, on the S and P five hundred futures or, or the VIX index. Uh, minus the realized volatility of the S&P 500. So it's the difference between implied and realized volatilities, And uh, um, it's persistently positive over time. And, but there is significant time variation. And it's this time variation that does appear to be associated with, with future market returns.
1: Cool. Well, what I'll do is I'll find a link um, to the paper and I'll put that in the show notes. So if anyone wants to read into this a little more and get some more context around it, Uh, It's
2: all detailed in the white paper. Great. And I want to mention that uh, um, this white paper is forecasting returns six months ahead. Um, But recently, Blair and I and uh, one of uh, um, Blair's colleagues, Petra, um, we put out a a new white paper uh, forecasting one month ahead market returns. So here, the, the goal is similar. We're trying to combine predictors. Um, now with a slightly different methodology compared to the first paper, but now the forecasting horizon is different. So the contribution from each return predictor, and we use a slightly different set as well, um, will look different compared to the first white paper as well. So if you're interested, um, this paper is also available on SSRN.
1: Okay, cool. Well, I'll get a direct link from you um, when we wrap this up. Yeah, awesome.
3: and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
1: Today, you are in a research analyst role. Can you just tell us a little bit about what a typical day looks like for you?
2: As a a research analyst, uh, I try to... Well, I guess the the central, the central tasks for me um, is to try to, try to think about our existing strategies, make sure they're robust, and try to come up with uh, additional investment strategies. So to that end, I probably spend uh, probably a quarter to a third of my time reading research papers, often academic research papers, um, and or industry reports to try to to try to brainstorm ideas, think about ideas, and uh, probably another. I want to say a fifth to, to a quarter of the time discussing ideas with my colleagues and probably half the time um, actually prototyping models and playing with data and, and try to um, either, I guess, either address client questions with, uh, uh, with research or if there are no urgent questions, try to think about uh, additional, uh, try to develop additional strategies.
1: Right. So it involves a lot of reading, yeah?
2: Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Do you ever run out
1: of things to read?
2: You know, it's incredible how much research is churned out all the time. So, uh, no, I'm, I think I'm constantly falling behind.
1: <laughs> right. So, how do you keep track? Like, if you're doing a lot of reading like that, how do you sort of keep track of all the information you're taking in? Like, does it ever get overwhelming at points? Like, how do you manage that?
2: Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, I think uh, I think people do it differently, and I can speak to uh, how how I try to organize the information. Is uh, every time I I read a paper, especially an academic research paper, I try to think about what the big question is behind the paper. And uh, typically, good academic papers all have a big question behind them. What What I mean by big question is uh, when you read maybe um, something like the the classic Fama French three-factor model. Mechanically, you're reading about how um, these two additional factors uh, alongside the markets is able to explain average returns. But the big question behind that is, how can we characterize average returns in the cross-section? And for some papers, it's is, is maybe easier than others, but, but keeping this big picture in mind um, helps me sort of put these papers into different categories. And, and that's very helpful for me in organizing these.
1: Okay, and do you ever read? material outside of academia as well, like maybe some blogs or, uh, I don't know, other sources as well, or are you just focused on what comes out of, um, the academic world?
2: So the, so the academic world is, is, is very good for, for a narrow focus and, and, uh, um, pieces that, that, uh, go quite deep into narrow areas. Um, but at the same time, you want to get uh, broader exposure as well. So, um, certainly, sometimes I, I take a look at um, blogs. One of my favorites is uh, actually by a former mentor of mine, uh, Frank Diebold at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, he blogs about uh, uh, econometrics and statistics and um, and sometimes, um, I guess, more, more random stuff. Um, but also, uh, newspapers, you know, um, the Economist, uh, The Wall Street Journal, the, these are all good places to, to try to find ideas because then um, you get an idea. If you, if you read the um, less uh, research-oriented publications, you get an idea what what is topical. What are people interested in? Um, and maybe, maybe you come up with an idea uh, to try to may, – maybe there's a puzzle in, in the world that people don't quite understand and uh, you spend some time thinking about it and that, that turns into uh, some interesting research.
1: Okay, and that blog you mentioned just a minute ago. Um, what's the link to that? Do you know it off the top of your
2: head? Uh, I don't, but I can send you a link later.
1: Okay, cool. That that um, anyone listening that can be found in the show notes. <laughs> um, now, do you specialize in any particular asset class?
2: My my time in Chicago, uh, I was trained to have an equities background, um, but I've I found that the statistical tools that uh, you you build up as part of your uh, toolkits often translate to other asset classes as well. So my current job, I often look at uh, commodities um, data as well, and I found actually much of the um, skills I've accumulated at Chicago actually translates pretty well to to commodity futures compared to um, equities. Um, But you do need to learn new institutional details about any new asset classes that you work in. Um, In terms of uh, specific market behavior, um, I look at both cross sessional and accurate asset level time series behavior. So um, I guess at a high level, um, how do how do the amount of risk or how risk is priced move uh, over time? and also um, how do how is risk different in the cross session across securities or cross assets, and how do they vary? Would you mind just explaining those things? In
1: a little more, I guess, more simple terms, um, like when you talk about things such as how risk is priced, like, can you just go into that a little further
2: and explain what that means? Sure, absolutely. Um, so, so, I think in, in modern asset pricing theory, um, the core of it is really to try to think about the interaction of two quantities. One is called risk quantity and one is called risk price. And risk quantity is essentially how much risk there exists. So we can use uh, maybe the, the agri-stock market as a good example here. Um, so how much risk is really associated with, with holding the stock market, holding the agri-stock market, let's say the S&P 500? Um, and we think that that risk actually maybe changes over time. For example, if you bought equities in, in uh, Q4 of 2008, maybe the risk is higher compared to if you bought it um, in March 2009. The other quantity is uh, so-called risk price. And that is for each, qu- for each unit of risk. And it's a little bit abstract here, but uh, um, I'll, try to, I'll try to explain. So for each unit of risk exposure that you hold, how much compensation are you getting? And I think maybe uh, a good way to think about this is if we think about the capital asset pricing model, one unit of risk maybe um, is market beta equals one. So what do you get – when you hold um, an asset that has a market beta of 1, well, according to the CAPM, you should get the equity premium. If you hold an asset with a market beta of 1.5, then you have one and a half times as much risk, and uh, you should get one and a half times the equity premium. So, the beta here is risk quantity, and uh, um, the equity risk premium here is the risk price. It's how much you get awarded for holding on a unit of risk. So I want to think about how do risk quantity and risk price interact and how do they change over time? So how are you measuring risk? Like what is – how do you define what a unit of risk is? Generally, from uh, modern asset pricing theory, maybe starting with uh, Markowitz, um, we're thinking about risk in terms of standard deviation. So how much, uh, how, how much can – what? What asset you hold, how much, can that, how much can its return vary over time, and uh, how much can that return vary in the cross-section. Um, another measure that I mentioned is, is market beta. So if your beta is one, then you're holding on to as much risk as if you were holding on to the S&P 500. But if you held market beta 0.5, you only hold on to half as much risk as the S&P 500, and so on and so forth
1: and just going back to an earlier point you made, you said that, you know, a lot of your education was centered around equities, but you know, nowadays a lot of your uh, research is centered around commodities. Is there any reason for that? Or is it just a matter of the, uh, the fund you're at is a very
2: commodities driven fund? Yeah, I think that, I think that's largely, largely it. Um, and I, I actually had some apprehension, um, in accepting this job, uh, trying to think about how my equities training would translate to, to commodities. And uh, and I was convinced um, by my current colleagues that uh, the tools I possessed actually did translate um, from equities commodities. And, and fortunately, they, they are largely right. Um, but I did have to really spend a lot of time um, learning the institutional details of commodity futures, um, which are which are quite different. The micro, the market microstructure of commodity futures are quite different compared to equities. Um, for example, futures have a term structure. So when one futures contract expires, you need to figure out how to, quote unquote, roll into the next nearest futures contract, and that doesn't exist if you hold on to, um, let's say, IBM stock because that's that's just a, a claim on all. Um, future cash flows. So, once you buy it, you can hold on to it until you sell. You don't ha- ever have to um, manage it in that you don't have to sell it and, and buy it back as you would for futures. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's understandable. I'd love to hear a little bit about your actual like research process. One of the first questions around that uh, I might start with is, you know, how do you actually come up with new ideas for research projects? Like, where do these come from? I, I, I guess, I mean, a lot of it probably comes from the amount of reading you do, but, um, yeah, can you share a little bit around that?
2: Yeah, sure. And I think we touched a little bit uh, upon this already. And, uh, my, my, I think my process is really just trying to trying to read broadly, both academic papers, um, as well as newspapers or magazines. Um, and just try to, try to think about what are some interesting ideas? What, well, what are some things that when you read, uh, you're puzzled by? And if, you, if you're puzzled by it, chances are many people, many other people are. And uh, if they aren't able to answer it, maybe it's, it's an interesting question and you should think harder about it. Um, I like to keep a research notebook whenever I read so that uh, I can write down any ideas that come to mind. Be- because it's very hard to know which ideas will work in the end. So all you can do is really try a lot of ideas, throw out the ones that don't quite work, and really focus on the ones that do work. And this process has worked pretty well for me.
1: Yeah, okay. So is there any like preliminary work you do when you, let's say you have a new idea, right? You, you put an idea in your notebook. Is there any kind of preliminary work you do, like looking into that idea before you actually decide to invest too much time on an idea that doesn't hold weight? Like is there anything you can do to kind of filter the good from the bad before throwing away too much time?
2: Yeah, I think this is uh, extremely important um, in in trying to manage your, your time for research. Um, so, as I mentioned, I like to keep a research notebook uh, and write down basically all my thoughts. And it turns out uh, many of these, unfortunately, are not very good. So, what I want to do to filter out the ones that are not very good from the ones that may have some potential um is to try to come up with uh, sharp tests. So often these are empirical ideas, so I can test them using data. Uh, so I want to come up with sharp tests, so I can quickly uh, do a preliminary test to see if the idea has any potential to work. Um, so I would try to think about the sharpest prediction this this idea would have, and try to think about how to test that um, what's in, in, in data. And so for, for each of these ideas, I I'd, don't I'd want to spend more than maybe a day or two in really um, trying to see if they ha- have any any value pursuing. And just through this process alone, um, this probably throws out, I want to say, 70-80% um, of the ideas already. Uh, and then the remaining ones I try to spend more time on and dig a little deeper.
1: Okay, and just to be clear, when you say sharp, that's got nothing to do with the sharp ratio,
2: does it? <sighs> no, no, uh, no, it doesn't. Uh, I just mean um, a prediction that that can be um, clearly rejected or, or, uh, or not.
1: So let's say someone's listening to this right now and they're keen to get better at researching their own ideas. Is there anything from your research process that you would suggest
2: less experienced researchers can emulate? I think the most important thing I would suggest is to try the ideas. Don't just read. When you read um, you feel pretty smart often because you're reading peep stuff that 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 has been published. That uh, uh, you're reading stuff written by other very smart people. Um, so it's easy to sort of fall into the trap of of reading too much and not actually trying out ideas. Um, if you don't try the ideas, you never know if they're any good, and you can't really you can't really produce um, any research. So I think you actually learn much more when you're trying out these ideas because you can understand the nuances and the details. Um, which you, there's no way to get from just reading alone. Um, so my main suggestion is to, to to just try the ideas. Don't don't be afraid the ideas won't work out. Most of mine don't. Um, but don't just read. Um, and a related point is that ideas change as you try them. But you won't know that, and you won't know how they will change un, unless you do it. So often uh, what happens is you start out thinking in one direction, and then as... As you try the idea um, and as you interact with the data, um, you realize that maybe your initial um, hunch is only 50% right. And you have to adjust your direction a little bit. And now your research has taken um, a slightly new direction. And often you have to do this many times. You have to really iterate this process many times before you get um, any – interesting results at all that are, that are worth presenting or, or worth discussing. Um, so I think you, you have to keep an open mind and just try the ideas.
1: Yeah. And I, I must say, I like how you point out that a lot of the things you try actually don't work. Like they don't amount to anything, you know, they are discarded.
2: <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's not a, uh, that's not unique to me. Um, from my, both my classmates and, and my mentors, uh, my current colleagues, um, all the empirical research I talk to, I, I think, uh, Share a similar, um, not quite frustration in the sense that this is part of research, but a similar experience um, in that many of the ideas are just uh, you know, you, you you read something, you write something down, you think it's the greatest idea since sliced bread. You come back to it in a couple of days and you realize, oh, this is actually not very good. Uh, <laughs> that actually happens quite often. Uh, and yeah. it's okay. That's, yeah. that's part of the process. No,
1: I'm sure a lot of us listening, or a lot of the uh, everyone who's listening to this, I'm sure can relate to that on some level. Now I want to ask you, are there like any, you know, obviously you went through this finance PhD program and I'm sure you learned a lot during those, those five years. Is there any skills which you use on a day-to-day basis though? Because, you know, some things are nice to know, but you don't use them too frequently. What are some of the tools you possess or the skills or different forms of
2: analysis which you use on pretty much a daily basis? So I prefer to start my analysis uh, very simple. So I still conduct exploratory data analysis that my uh, maybe second statistics class uh, in college um, taught me to do. So look at summary statistics, look at histograms, scatter plots, time series plot. Just try to get an idea what the data looks like. And um, that actually gives you pretty good sense whether your hypothesis has uh, any chance of working or not. and it turns out, uh, just simple linear regression, um, actually goes a long way in, in discovering patterns in the data. If the idea is strong and, uh, um, the empirical findings robust, uh, just a simple regression, uh, should show you how it works. So I think, you know, despite all, all the, all the fancy techniques that uh, I have learned, uh, in grad school, uh, and elsewhere, um, I sort of still stick to some of the most basic tools uh, to try to, to, try to um, construct my thoughts. And you can go to more sophisticated tools as necessary, but uh, you don't want to start with something overly complex because otherwise you sort of get lost in the details and um, you, know, you, can't, you can't really interpret a complex model very well.
1: So by doing linear regression, what
2: sort of things is that likely to reveal
1: and, and show to you?
2: So it's it's uh, obviously has some has some drawbacks in that it is it is a linear approximation to to things that are not linear, um, but often, um, in in finance and asset pricing, um, many many things can be linearized. So regression actually is is a very good uh, um, at least initial tool to to get an idea of how your hypothesis may work. So and and that I think that ties closely with uh, just looking at scatter plots, just just look at uh, time series plots, just, just look at what the data looks like, um, actually goes a long way as mm-hmm. well.
1: Okay, yeah. Now, what stands between you as a research analyst coming up with a new idea, something which you think holds weight, has potential, what stands between that point and actually that idea or that new research being implemented into... You know, live trading within the fund.
2: I'm going to answer a little bit more broadly here. I, I, I think it depends on your holding period, um, if, for for your investment strategy. If you're going after uh, lower frequency risk premiums, um, something on the order of months or, or longer, then I think uh, execution is less important because you're trying to pick up um, true risk premiums. So you don't have to, you don't need really too heavy machinery for trading if your holding period is a little bit is is that long but if you go into higher frequencies maybe intraday or or days or of course high frequency trading itself then execution becomes very important Uh, so you may need to set up serious trading platforms because uh, execution may be where you make a significant fraction of your profits
1: okay but do you have to get like this checked off by anyone who might be a level above you or anything like that like are there any processes around there
2: yeah, um, and I, I don't want to speak too much uh, about the exact process um, at my uh, um, at my current job, um, but I think uh, uh, broadly, you know, in, in investment management firms, that there there is certainly a process to go from research to implementation. Um, and I think how how big of a step that is, I, I think, depends on what I mentioned earlier about holding period. So if if it is a lower frequency um, strategy and uh, uh, fr- execution is not terribly important, then maybe the language that that you did the research in, maybe in R or, or Python or MATLAB, is good enough. It's fast enough because you're not trying to go for speed um, to, to sort of just take your research, take your portfolio, and, uh, and implement it. But if you're going for higher frequency, then... Um, something like R is probably not going to be fast enough. It's not going to be industrial strength. So you have to um, either link it to something like C++ or give your code to a financial engineer to, to, um, to code it up in something like C++ to, so that so the code actually runs fast enough um, to, to trade in real time.
1: Okay. And then let's say something is trading in real time. How do you measure the accuracy of your research? after that
2: point so i think perhaps the the best thing um the best metric here is uh, just a out of sample test a good old-fashioned out of sample test of of your hypothesis so anytime you you formulate a, a research strategy there's gonna be some sort of back test if it's a quantitative approach um and uh by its nature the back test is likely going to be overfitted uh, because you played around with the data for so long it's inevitable that uh in some places, you you sort of tilt the the cars in your favor, if you will, um, so that so out of sample is completely new data that you haven't seen, and uh, your hypothesis has, hasn't um, hasn't mined this this new data set. So that I think I think the best way to judge um, how good your model is 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 to run it in out of sample period for six months, for three months, six months, um, whatever time you have. And to see, to compare its performance compared to your back test. And typically, there's gonna be some sort of decay compared to your back test because the back test is overfitted. Um, but how much that decay indicates how good your strategy is. For example, if your back test, your strategy had a sharp ratio of two and a half, and in the live period, um, once you started running the strategy for six months, your sharp ratio was one. That means your sharp ratio decayed 60%. So in that example, if your back test sharp ratio is two and a half and uh, um, and you start maybe running a paper portfolio or running the strategy live for six months and you get a sharp ratio of one um, that's a big drop compared to two and a half which means which probably means that your back test is not as believable as you might you might have thought whereas in, in another example if uh, um, in your back test your sharp ratio is one and a half and in your live period, your sharp ratio is 1.2. That difference is quite a bit smaller. So that this shows, at least in the period that you tested in the out-of-sample period that you tested, um, your strategy looks fairly robust compared to your back test.
1: Okay. Okay. So is, is sharp ratio one of the measures you use to determine how much decay you're you're happy with?
2: Certainly, it's it's one of the metrics. It, it's by no means the only metric, and um, I think different um people may focus on may um, put different weights on 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 the following metrics but they all look at returns uh cumulative returns volatility sharp ratio cumulative drawdown maximum drawdown um and probably some sort of tail correlation
1: okay and what
2: what do you mean by tail correlation so in extreme events what happens to your strategy so perhaps in the global financial crisis in late 2008 um when the equity markets um, really drop quite a bit. What happened to your strategy? Did your strategy drop with equity markets? If so, that means uh, your strategy. Um, that means when equity markets perform really poorly, so does yours. Even if normally your strategy isn't, may not be closely correlated with equity markets. So, um, so these tail events um, are, you know, really bad outcomes at the extreme ends. So, Shao, one of the last things I'd like to ask you about
1: is um, academic uh, practitioner. Um, have you found any challenges or a disconnect maybe between the academic research world and actually real-world implementation as a practitioner?
2: You know, I, I think disconnect is somewhat strong, but but I do think that academic research and real-world practitioners have different research focus. Um, so naturally naturally, they will think about the problem, um, maybe what looks like a similar problem, in very different ways. For example, academia cares about formulating and testing theories, which means abstracting from certain real-world issues, whereas industry cares about implementation. um, So issues academia ignores becomes very important. So, for example, one thing I found um, after I started working and after I left academia is that trading costs and factory investing and turnover – um, is supremely important, and this is something that doesn't come out of uh, work such as the Fama-French three-factor model. Um, so when you actually try to uh, try to trade maybe a value or momentum factor, um, the slippage, so so the trading costs you incur, um, and the transactions costs you incur are are actually quite important, um, and maybe as important as the risk premium you found. Uh, another aspect of this is uh, um, is perhaps uh, intermediaries. So, how important they are. And I think recent academic finance has started thinking about uh, um, how important maybe broker-dealers or, or um, banks, uh, how they matter in the financial system, how how they can really uh, make or break um, the overall financial system. Um, but apparently, practitioners have been aware of this for decades, uh, if not longer. Um, so, so, I think it's just Due to the nature of their focuses, they think about problems differently, and sometimes they have trouble talking to one another.
1: How come trading costs are often neglected when it comes to academic research? Like it's, it's something that there's no avoiding it. <laughs> you know what I mean?
2: Yeah, and uh, you know, maybe, maybe to you, Aaron, this is this is. Uh, you know, dead obvious. You know, how can you possibly ignore trading costs? It's one of the most important things. Um, but in academic research, um, trading costs have been relegated to, to one strand of research uh, called market microstructure. So that's, that's when people study um, how, how market participants trade and how they impact prices, how they impact liquidity, and so on. But that's only one strand of asset pricing literature. And, and it's probably not even, probably not even the biggest. So cross-sectional asset pricing, on the other hand, is another strand of research that, that that's much bigger. So thinking about uh, you know, size, value, momentum, maybe profitability, and other, other factors that determine um, average returns in the cross-section um, in the absence of transactions costs. And I think that that's just because um, academia needs to break the problem down to very specific pieces and try to dig very deep on understanding each piece. So, when you try to understand average returns in the cross section, um, academics traditionally have ignored or mostly have ignored, um, transactions costs under this setting. That doesn't mean they, they don't acknowledge the existence of transactions costs. Just in this setting, studying this particular question, they choose to ignore it. Um, of course. You know, perhaps uh, to your point, you can't totally ignore transactions costs when when you do this analysis. Um, And I think that's precisely the points that practitioners make.
1: And were there any preconceptions that you had about trading and investing when you made the crossover from being an academic to uh, being a practitioner, like once you actually started working in the field, were there any preconceptions you had about trading and investing prior to then?
2: Yeah, I think this is very much related to um, to the disconnect between or, or or to some disconnect between academic research and real world implementation. Um, so, as part of my training, I, I viewed risk premiums as perhaps the most important aspect of a strategy. But I've since learned that it's only it's only one aspect, and uh, trading costs or 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 uh, market microstructure. Effects are at least as important as the risk premium itself uh, market impact is Much more important than I previously thought liquidity is more important um, even when I, sp- even in school when I spent a lot of time thinking about liquidity I, I still underestimated how important it would be for for a portfolio strategy um, also when to rebalance the portfolio turns out to be very important because is- uh, um, liquidity in the-, in the marketplace is uh, constantly changing over time and if you rebalance your portfolio during a large rebalance, let's say uh, the Russell index is rebalanced um, in June, and you also choose to rebalance in that time, liquidity in the marketplace will be quite a bit, quite a bit deeper compared to if you rebalance at a time that nobody else is trading. The frequency of rebalance is also important. Um, and of course, these are just a few, few points that I realized uh, are at least as important, if not more, compared to just risk, risk premiums themselves that I think I, I didn't quite get the perspective while I was in school. You know,
1: I think those are all really interesting points that you make there. If someone is keen to find out a little bit more about yourself, I believe you have a website.
2: Um, do you want to share the link? Sure. Um, it's uh, So I can, I can send you the link once again. Uh, that's probably the easiest way. Okay. Um, not everyone who
1: listens to this will see the show notes though because like, some people just listen to it on iTunes, Spotify, etc., um, is the link a bit hard to, uh,
2: that's okay. So if you, uh, if you just Google my name, uh, Xiao Chow, X I A O Q I A O, and you put maybe Chicago after my name, I think it should be the, um, the first link you get in Google. Uh oh, perfect. Okay, cool. Yeah. So unfortunately my name overlaps with, uh, with like a historical, character in a video game okay. so if you just put ciao Chow you'll get like this anime girl and that's certainly not me
1: <laughs> right good to know good to know uh do you happen to be on twitter or any other social network
2: um i'm not on twitter actually um i have facebook i have linkedin okay cool well i'm sure someone can find
1: you on linkedin as well if they want to i must say i really enjoyed this conversation shout it was nice to speak to you again after meeting and um again, speaking with you at QuantCon. So yeah, thanks very much. I'm glad we got the chance to actually um, record this and do it as
2: a podcast. Hey, thanks very much, Aaron. Likewise, I enjoyed our chat very much. Thanks a lot for having me. Okay, we'll speak soon. Take care, Aaron. You've reached the end of
0: this episode of Chat with Traders, but rest assured there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon.